reading of the Ames Tribune for Tuesday, May 5th, 2020. Your reader today is Dave Sauerman, and you are listening to IRIS, your Iowa radio reading and information service for the blind and print handicapped. Our first story, 16th COVID-19 case in seven days confirmed Monday. This story is written by David Mullen, staff writer for the Ames Tribune. Health officials Monday announced five more cases of COVID-19 in Story County, bringing to 16 the total confirmed in the past week, the highest number over a seven-day span to date. Since the first confirmed case of COVID-19 was reported in Story County, the most confirmed in a single week had been nine to this point. The five announced Monday by the Iowa Department of Public Health, along with one each on Saturday and Sunday, brought the county's total to 38. Stephen Sullivan, spokesman for Mary Greeley Medical Center, confirmed the additional cases and said two of the individuals were treated, or excuse me, tested at McFarland Clinic location. Two were tested at Story County Medical Facility and one was tested at a Tyson plant. Sullivan did not know if the person tested at Tyson is an employee. Of the new cases announced on Monday, the State Health Department confirmed one was Story County's first child to be diagnosed. Two patients, ages, ages range from 18 to 40. Three patients range from 41 to 60. And one patient is 61 to 80 years of age. Statewide, Governor Kim Reynolds announced 534 new confirmed cases of COVID-19 as well as four deaths during her daily press conference on Monday morning. There were 19 deaths as of Tuesday morning during her daily press conference on Monday. As of Monday, 9,703 Iowans have been tested positive for COVID-19 and 188 have died of the disease. Throughout Story County, 841 residents have been tested for the novel coronavirus and of the 38 who tested positive, 26 have fully recovered. Our next story, a former Story County treasurer is accused of theft and burglary. This story is written by David Mullen, staff writer for the Ames Tribune. Former Story County treasurer Renee M. Tweed faces a charge of second degree theft after allegedly taking more than $5,000 worth of property from a truck belonging to her husband from whom she is separated, authorities said. Tweed also was charged with third-degree burglary and operating a vehicle without the owner's consent. Both are classified as aggravated misdemeanors. If found guilty of all charges, Tweed could face a maximum sentence of nine years in prison and a fine of up to $20,000. Multiple attempts by the Tribune to reach Tweed on Tuesday, excuse me, Monday, were unsuccessful. Tweet, who is 51, elected county treasurer in 2010, lost a re-election bid to current county treasurer Ted Rasmussen in 2018. An employee of the office sued her that year, alleging age discrimination. The lawsuit was dismissed in July 2018 after a settlement. According to a criminal complaint filed by Story City Police, Tweet allegedly went April 27 to a residence in the 500 block of Broad Street, where surveillance footage showed she entered and moved her husband's 2011 GMC Sierra truck. She rummaged through the truck for about 30 minutes, looking for property of value, 
and was seen leaving in another vehicle with a backpack from the truck, according to Matt Sportier, Story City's police chief. The complaint said that minutes later, Tweed returned to the truck and was seen removing its trailer hitch and the hitch from another truck belonging to her husband, who Sportier identified as Seth Tweed. When Seth reported the incident to the authorities, he said $4,000 in cash and other items such as trail cameras worth an estimated $1,150 had been taken from the vehicle, Sportier said. Local authorities said that Renee Tweet was spotted Sunday at a local market. They detained her and took her to Story County Jail in Nevada. They, uh, she was then released on Monday on a $20,000 bond. An initial appearance is scheduled for June 3rd at Ames City Hall, said Story County Attorney Tim Meals. Our next story, the downtown Hy-Vee Pharmacy to close in June and merge with Lincoln Center Hy-Vee. This story is written by David Mullen, staff writer for the Tribune. After 25 years in business, the Hy-Vee drugstore in downtown Ames will close on June 21st and merge with the newly remodeled Lincoln Center Hy-Vee located at 640 Lincoln Way, the Iowa-based chain announced. The business opened its doors in September 1995. Over the weekend, staff began notifying customers of the news to shut down the location in late June. Officials from Hy-Vee said the merger will not interrupt services as the pharmacy will reopen at the Lincoln Center location the following day. Customers will not experience any interruption in their service and all pharmaceutical and healthcare needs will continue to be met throughout or without any delays during the move. Christina Gaiman, Hy-Vee's Director of Public Relations said in an email to the Tribune. Over the past several years, Hy-Vee has been upgrading its location at 640 Lincoln Way the business has seen the addition of a new floral department, Mia Pizza, a hibachi and Asian cuisine center, a casual dining restaurant with a full bar, and a brand new bakery. The final stage of the grand remodeling process, however, is merging the downtown pharmacy location into the store's new pharmacy, Gaiman said. Lincoln Center Hy-Vee is undergoing a major remodel, which has provided us with the opportunity to merge these two pharmacy locations into one, Gaiman said. The bulk of the remodel was completed a couple of months ago, and the pharmacy merging is the last component. Gaiman said in May, Hy-Vee will be sending a letter to each of its current customers at the downtown location with additional information about the merger. All current staff members employed at the drugstore downtown will be offered positions at one of the two Hy-Vee stores within the city. Our next story, Stephen O'Rourke announces a bid for supervisor seat. This story is written by Robbie Sequera, staff writer for the Ames Tribune. Stephen O'Rourke sees himself as a fixer and in his bid for a seat on the Story County Board of Supervisors, he says he wants to fix a hidden problem by creating a program that provides forgivable construction loans for first-time and current homeowners. For 10 years, I was a licensed mortgage banker and a real estate broker. It was during this time I became aware of a financial product that helped people buy and refinance existing homes 
and renovate them in Polk County, O'Rourke told the Tribune. It allows homeowners to build equity in their homes very quickly. This program will benefit the county through better housing and sustainable property assessments. O'Rourke is vying for the four-year supervisor seat held by Loris Olson. Olson, the longest tenured sitting supervisor, announced in February she would not seek re-election in November, citing health issues. Though O'Rourke is running as a Republican, he said he doesn't care about party affiliation. The labels don't mean anything, he said. You can't tell me the other people on the other side of the aisle don't have good ideas. I want voters to know that I am a person who gets things done, and it doesn't really rely on political labels. He will face Patrick Sparks, who vied for the seat on the Board of Supervisors last summer in the June 2 primary. The winner will face off against longtime county employee Latifa Faisal, a Democrat in November. The forgivable construction loans, according to O'Rourke, would be privately funded with no income restriction. Amounts would range from $10,000 to $20,000, depending upon the type of home project. My goal as your Story County Supervisor would be to introduce this program into Story County my first term besides my other supervisor duties, O'Rourke said. My promise to county voters is that I will spend your money like it is my own. He said he hopes the program, which has been implemented in Polk County for 30 years, could provide similar benefits to Story County homeowners. This program continues to benefit Polk County residents, he said, but until recently was not implemented anywhere else in Iowa. Why? He said, because no one had the vision or motivation to implement this program in our county and bring that success here, O'Rourke said. O'Rourke is owner of Ames Westside Storage and a licensed public adjuster in Iowa and Wisconsin. He said another issue for county homeowners is identifying the current housing opportunities in the county. In November, the supervisors contracted with Des Moines-based RDG Planning and Design to conduct a housing needs assessment that will identify all existing and future housing stock in the county, Sands Ames. Ames housing data will be added to the county study following the adoption of the Ames 2040 plan, which is also being conducted by RDG Planning and Design. It will be the first time the county has conducted a housing needs study since 1997. O'Rourke, who has lived in Ames, Nevada, and Maxwell, said his first run for the public office is about representation for all county residents. County residents from Zeering, Maxwell, or Nevada want a supervisor who knows the area, knows what they are dealing with, and aren't just in Ames, he said. In light of restrictions on in-person campaigning efforts due to COVID-19, O'Rourke has had to resort to unconventional means of spreading his message and campaigning for 99 cents. For 99 cents, he was able to purchase a domain name and titled storycountysupervisor.com, which leads to his campaign website. Additionally, despite being a primary, O'Rourke said he plans to get through the primary with just $300 and that he's not seeking, he's not, he is not seeking donations. He's just seeking the confidence of county voters. I'm not seeking donations to push through the June 2 primary, he said. I'm looking for people to reach out and find out what I can bring them as a Story County supervisor. And the final story on the front page, 
the Board of Regents proposes a tuition freeze for the fall 2020 semester. The story by Kylie Wellendorf, staff writer for the Tribune. Iowa universities and students may not see an increase in tuition and fees for the fall 2020 semester. During Monday's Board of Regents virtual special meeting, Chief Business Officer Brad Berg unveiled a proposal that tuition and fees remain flat for the fall 2020 semester. The board is scheduled to consider the proposal June 4, according to Burke. The regents will again look at tuition and fees in the fall, said Angie Hunt, Director of Communications at Iowa State University. We support the board's proposal to freeze tuition for the fall of 2020, Iowa State University President Wendy Winterstein said in an emailed statement to the Tribune. We know many students and their families are facing financial challenges as a result of COVID-19 crisis, and this would provide some stability for them during the difficult times. The tuition freeze will save Iowa students and families roughly $6.5 million. The Iowa Student Aid Action Group wrote in a press release following the meeting. Alexa Rodriguez, an ISU sophomore and Iowa Student Action member, said the proposal was a win both for students struggling financially prior to the pandemic and those who are faced with new financial challenges. It's very exciting, Rodriguez said. Iowa Student Action has been working for this for the past two years and what it means for students all around is we won't see an increase in tuition every year that we're here, which is already an issue before the pandemic. It shouldn't have taken a pandemic for the Board of Regents to realize that freezing tuition would really help out students who are currently struggling to afford the raise in tuition costs. According to the Iowa State Office of Regents, or Registrar, excuse me, Registrar, for the price tags for most majors at the university, they are, for undergraduate residential, $4,021, for undergraduate non-residential, $11,615, for undergraduate international, $12,431 for graduate residential $4,879 for graduate non-residential $12,360 and for graduate international $13,176. The estimated financial impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Iowa State University amounts to millions of dollars, Winterstein told the Regents during a virtual meeting on April 30. In early April, we conservatively estimated the impact of the COVID-19 crisis would total more than $88 million in refunds and lost revenue, Winterstein said, and close to $1 million in additional expenses. The projection covers the period from early March to mid-August, she said, noting the figures do not include our research enterprise. The Iowa State community has responded to this crisis with connectivity, innovation, and flexibility, Winterstein told the Regents. I feel very proud of our faculty and the staff who responded quickly to uphold our mission to ensure critical university operations continue and to keep our students on track with their academic progress. Nevertheless, the financial impact on Iowa State University will be unprecedented. Iowa State University first saw financial impacts following the decision to pull students from study abroad due to the pandemic later canceling the program. The impact broadened with Iowa State University's decision to move to virtual instruction for the remainder of the spring semester. We immediately initiated discussions about refunds for housing, dining, cars fees, and parking, Winterstein said. With 40% of the semester being moved online 
and students encouraged to return home, we decided to provide prorated refunds for course fees that supported hands-on learning components like field trips and lab equipment. Of the 6,400 students who were living in residence halls prior to the pandemic, only 280 remain, Winterstein said. Our usually bustling campus has gone quiet as conferences, seminars, athletic events, and other performances have been called off, Winterstein said. As the number of event cancellations increase, the amount of lost revenue will multiply, Winterstein said. For the Memorial Union, the Department of Residence, Iowa State University Dining, the Iowa State Bookstore, the Iowa State Center, the University Museums, they're all reporting significant losses. We will continue to carefully monitor our losses and increase costs during the coming months, Winterstein said. Turning inside the Tribune now, the Iowa Federal Court appears to bring back, or excuse me, prepares to bring back juries. This story is written by Tricia Mahaffey. She writes for the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Federal court officials have made contingency plans to go forward with grand jury proceedings after May 11 and possibly trials that are on the docket after June 1st, but there will be safety precautions in place. Robert Phelps, administrator of the United States Northern District of Iowa, said Chief Judge Leonard Strand has amended a previous order on federal grand juries and trial juries, but it's dependent on recommendations from Governor Kim Reynolds, public health officials, and the Centers for Disease Control. Restrictions on group sizes and social distancing for Lynn and Woodbury counties, where both northern district courthouses are located, have not yet been lifted. Reynolds' orders affecting these counties expire May 15, unless she changes them by then. Phelps said if a grand jury is called later this month, the courts have enough space for social distancing. The grand jurors serve two-year terms and have already been selected. The plan is to move the proceedings into one of the largest courtrooms we have so that everyone is a minimum of six feet apart, Phelps said. A grand jury of 16 to 20 people will be spaced out in whatever courtroom we use because the public is not allowed in the courtroom during grand jury proceedings. Phelps said he and jury administrators have been talking with members of the grand jury about the precautions they plan to take to protect their health and provide a safe environment. Most people understand the serious nature of the judicial process. They appreciate the extra steps we are taking for their protection, and they are ready to serve whenever we move forward, he said. Phelps acknowledged a few jurors expressed concern. He said court officials will look at which jurors fall into the most at-risk categories established by the CDC, and some could be excused from serving. A grand jury requires 16 impartial people to listen to evidence and witnesses presented by a prosecutor who lays out an outline of the case. The jurors then vote on whether they believe there is probable cause to indict or charge a person with a federal crime. Phelps said grand jurors would be asked to wear masks as long as restrictions are in place. The court would provide one if a grand juror didn't already have one that is appropriate. The custodial staff has been doing an excellent job of sanitizing and doing extra cleanings throughout the federal courthouses in Cedar Rapids and Sioux City, he said. If jury trials go forward starting in June, the same basic guidelines for social distancing and sanitizing of courthouses will be followed. Phelps said 12 jurors and two alternates for a criminal trial would be spaced apart in the jury box and chairs would be added in front of it during jury selection. 
The prospective jurors not in the immediate panel being questioned would be seated in two of more, uh, excuse me, in two or more other courtrooms to allow social distancing and could watch a live stream of the selection process. Strand, in his order, said if the defense or prosecution wants a continuance of a trial set for June 1st or after, due to public health concerns, the presiding judge would have discretion to consider the request. Most people understand the serious nature of the judicial process. They appreciate the extra steps you are taking for their protection, and they are ready to serve whenever we move forward. Our next story, Trump's choice for watchdog over pandemic funds vows vigilance. This story is written by Shalaya Motion and Laura Davidson. They write for Bloomberg News. President Donald Trump's nominee to oversee trillions of dollars in the effort to rescue the economy from the coronavirus pandemic pledged to conduct every audit and investigation with fairness and impartiality. I will be vigilant to protect the integrity and the independence of the Office of Special Inspector General and will work to uncover fraud, waste, and abuse, Brian Miller said in a prepared remark released Monday. He's scheduled to face the Senate Banking Committee on Tuesday in Washington as lawmakers weigh his nomination as Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery, or SIGPR. Created by the $2.2 trillion CARES Act that Congress passed in March, the SIGPR's purview will include key stimulus programs, including $454 billion in backstops to lending programs throughout the Federal Reserve, as well as money for airlines and defense companies. The central bank is leveraging funds from the Treasury Department into trillions of dollars in liquidity for the economy. Miller had experience as a watchdog earlier in his career, probing health care fraud for the Justice Department and monitoring spending at the General Services Administration. But Democrats have questioned his independence in light of his current post as a top White House lawyer who participated in Trump's impeachment defense. It is unclear how deep Miller may probe if, as expected, he wins confirmation in the Republican-led Senate. Trump already has sought to rein in the post Miller would fill by limiting its communications with Congress. While Democrats demand aggressive oversight, the president has moved in recent weeks to strip power from inspectors generals he views as disloyal. Trump dismissed one watchdog, criticized another for spotlighting reports of equipment shortages at hospitals, and shuttered another from a post overseeing pandemic spending beyond the Treasury Department. The SIGPR will operate inside the Treasury to oversee Secretary Steven Mnuchin's work with an operating budget of about $25 million over five years and is supposed to submit quarterly reports to Congress. Our next story is a fact check. Are vitamins C and D now a COVID-19 treatment? This story is written by Stephanie Gruber-Miller from USA Today. Despite a lack of evidence that vitamins are effective against the COVID-19, Novel coronavirus, a doctor with a history of making misleading claims, said they are used as a treatment for the virus. An April 7 article on the website of the Organic Consumers Association by Joseph Mercola headlined Vitamin C and D Finally Adopted as Coronavirus Treatment claims that vitamin C and D are now finally being adopted in the conventional treatment of novel coronavirus. Mercola is a doctor of osteopathy 
who promotes alternative medicines. The United States Food and Drug Administration has issued Mercola at least three warning letters accusing him of making false or misleading claims about products he promoted on his website. The information he's putting out to the public is extremely misleading and potentially very dangerous, Dr. Stephen Barrett told Chicago Magazine in 2012. In an article about Mercola, Barrett runs quackwatch.org, a medical watchdog website. He exaggerates the risks and the potential dangers of legitimate science-based medical care, and he promotes a lot of unsubstantiated ideas and sells certain products with claims that are misleading. Mercola's claim about vitamins and the coronavirus cites a New York Post article from March 24 that describes the use of vitamin C by Northwell Health a New York hospital system to treat patients with coronavirus. Northwell spokesperson Jason Mollett confirmed to USA Today that vitamin C was one of many therapies employed at the discretion of physicians in our health system. Mollett declined to answer follow-up questions about how widespread the use of vitamin C was, what the results of the treatment were, and what studies or data Northwell relied on when deciding whether to use vitamin C as part of COVID-19 treatment. He declined to make a doctor available to speak about the treatment, saying, that's the extent of our statement on this. William Schaffner, medical director for the National Foundation for Infectious Diseases and a professor of infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine said, He's heard of claims that vitamin C and D can be used either to prevent disease or to treat it. He says, I sure wish they were true, but there's no evidence to support either of those vitamins being an effective or preventative or treatment of any dose. If that were true, believe me, it would be headline news and we would all be recommending it, he said. At a coronavirus briefing, several states allow limited reopenings, Monday brought a flurry of reopenings across the country, including gyms, fitness centers, indoor athletic facilities in Arkansas, and restaurants, bars, casinos, breweries, distilleries in Montana. Kansas will begin a three-phase reopening strategy upon the expiration of its statewide stay-at-home order, and Colorado and Minnesota will begin opening non-essential businesses. In California, sparsely populated Modoc County reopened on Friday against the state's stay-at-home order. Yuba and Sutter counties, each with few cases of the coronavirus, are allowing businesses including restaurants, retail operations, gyms, hair salons, and public spaces to reopen as long as people can follow social distancing guidelines. Numbers continue to decline in New York new COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and intubations are continuing their slow but steady decline in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo said Monday. Sunday's death toll of 226 was the fewest in several weeks, but Cuomo remained solemn. That's 226 families that face tragedy, he said. The virus has claimed the lives of more than 19,000 people across the state of New York. Unfortunately, the decline from the mountain is not as steep as the incline was, Cuomo said, adding that the state will reopen in regions, not all at once. If upstate has to wait for downstate to be ready to open, 
they're going to be waiting a long time. Two-thirds of Americans support voting by mail as an alternative to voting in person on Election Day during the pandemic, according to a new poll from USA Today and Suffolk University. But while Democrats and independent voters overwhelmingly back vote by mail, the majority of Republican voters oppose it. The poll found 65% of Americans support vote by mail as an alternative, a greater than two to one margin, over the 32% of Americans who oppose the idea. I think it shows that people are open to alternative methods of voting provided that they are safe, said David Palologos, director of the Suffolk University Political Research Center. More than four million Italians returned to work on Monday after two months on the sidelines as the nation of 62 million people began to tenuously emerge from its lockdown. Construction and manufacturing restarted, although most stores are scheduled to remain closed for two more weeks. Daily deaths tolls have declined in recent days. I wouldn't like the message to come across that it is all over and that we are starting afresh as if nothing had happened, Health Minister Roberto Speranza said. Unfortunately, the epidemic is still here, although it is in some ways diminished. 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl says she's feeling better after spending a week in a hospital. The journalist, who is 78 years of age, said that she was really scared as she spent two weeks in a bed with pneumonia before going to the hospital. I found an overworked, nearly overwhelmed staff, she said. Every one of them kind, sympathetic, gentle, and caring from the moment I arrived until the moment days later when I was wheeled out through a gauntlet of cheering medical workers. You are listening to the Ames Tribune on IRIS, your Iowa radio reading and information service for the blind and print handicapped. Your reader today is Dave Sowerman, and it is time to turn to the obituaries. David S. Bachman was born May 6, 1942, in Holstein, Iowa, to Raymond and Ruth Schroeder Bachman. He grew up on a farm outside of Story City and graduated from Story City High School in 1961. David played football, basketball, was in drama, and was very involved in FFA. He loved being outdoors and hunted, fished, farmed, and always made time to detail and work on his car. David was a self-taught man. He could build and fix anything he needed to, and he always would give a helping hand to friends and family when needed. On June 17, 1963, he married Catherine Marie Borwick. He lived in Ames, Iowa, and then moved to Mission, Texas. He retired from the National Animal Disease Lab of Ames, Iowa, where he had worked in the maintenance department. David loved going to Iowa State football games, watched his children roller skate at J4 Rollaway, snow skiing, boating, traveling with his travel trailer, motorcycling with family and friends, and being an assistant coach for his children's sports. David stayed busy with his grandchildren. He took them camping, fishing, swimming, even stopped at playgrounds to play and lots of golf cart rides. David also took them to the zoo and the amusement parks. He was a very loving grandpa. David passed away January 23, 2020 at Amara Hospice in Edinburgh, Texas at the age of 77. We would like to give a special thanks to the close friends and family who stood by us the last few weeks of his life. 
David is survived by his son, Stephen Bachman of Fairbolt, Minnesota, daughter, Sandra Nelson, Douglas, and Douglas of Slater, Iowa, grandchildren, Lauren Petit of Kentucky, Austin Nelson of Slater, Iowa, Jacob Bachman of Awatana, Minnesota, brothers, Charles Bachman of Omaha, Nebraska, Daryl Bachman and Rhonda of Boone, Eddie Bachman and Gwen of Nevada, Paul Bachman of Ames, and sister Anne Rasmussen and Fred of Ames, brother-in-law Kenny Borwick and Vicki of Nevada. David was preceded in death by his wife, Catherine Bachman, his parents, Edmund and Ruth Bachman, a brother, Kurt Bachman, his sister, Deborah King, and parents-in-law, Tom and Wilma Wicks. Memorial contributions can be made out to the Ballard Clay Bombers, a trap team. David was proud of his grandson, Austin Nelson, who is a participant in the sport. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, no public services will be held. Online condolences may be directed to Grandin Funeral and Cremation Care.com. Margaret Henning, age 101, of Maxwell, Iowa, died Thursday, April 30th, at Israel Family Hospice in Ames. Due to state and federal guidance on gatherings due to COVID-19, the family will not be having a public memorial at this time. Condolences may be expressed online at amesmonument.com. Ames Monument and Cremation Center has been entrusted with the care of Margaret and her family. And one more obituary of someone nationally famous. The great Don Shula was gruff and demanding, but he also had a softer side. The great Don Shula was a football genius, the winningest coach in NFL history, whose 1972 Miami Dolphins remained the league's only perfect team. Shula, who passed away Monday morning at the age of 90, was a Hall of Famer in every way, a cornerstone of the game as it became America's pastime. I knew him as all of that and more. It was the summer of 1980, and as a college intern at the Miami Herald, I was dispatched to Dolphins training camp with a specific assignment to ask about problems with Miami's running game. Eight years earlier, as a young girl in Toledo, I had been writing fan letters to Shula and his players. Now I was standing five feet from him in a knot of reporters and camera crews. It was the first time I had seen him in person. I was no longer a fan, I was a journalist, and this was no time to waver. Coach, I said, what's wrong with the running game? Shula, who was sitting on a bench, slowly looked up to see who would ask that question. He clearly didn't like the question, and he glared at me. Well, you know, we ran the ball pretty well the other day, he started out, looking utterly disgusted with me. He then listed a few positive statistics about his running backs. I stood my ground and followed up by asking if he planned any changes. No, he said. His stare told me there would be no more questions from me on that day. I was back at Dolphin's camp the next week in the same gaggle of journalists when Shula smiled and said hello. It was the beginning of one of the most wonderful coach-reporter relationships I had. When I returned to the Herald to start my career after finishing at Northwestern, my beat was college football, but I often was assigned to help out on the Dolphins, particularly on game days. I soon realized the gruff and demanding Don Shula was, well, 
a feminist, although he wouldn't have liked the term, certainly not back then. Normally, after games, I waited in loading docks under stadiums for players to be brought to me for interviews as the male reporters went into the locker room to do their jobs. But with the Dolphins, I walked right into the locker room with everyone else. Why? In 1981, Shula told all of his players that they were going to wear robes because women like me were being assigned to cover the National Football League and he was going to make sure we had the same access as men did. Leave it to the innovative mind of Don Shula to find a way to solve a problem before everyone else did. It wasn't until 1985 that the National Football League Commissioner Pete Rozelle made equal locker room access mandatory for every team. And let's be honest, to this day there are coaches who still be believe women in sports media shouldn't be allowed equal access to conduct interviews and to do their jobs. Shula had it all figured out before some of those guys were even born. After one game, I was in the Dolphins locker room conducting an interview when I felt a slight tug on my elbow. I really didn't want to be interrupted. I kept on working. The tug came again. I swung around impatiently. It was Don Shula. Everything going okay here? The question startled me. Uh, you bet, coach, I said, hoping I didn't look as perturbed as I felt a moment earlier. Everything's great, thanks. Good, he said, smiling kindly. Keep up the good work. Over the years, I ran into Shula at NFL meetings, and we always stopped and caught up. I called him occasionally for USA Today columns, seeking his thoughts on various subjects. He always was the voice of reason in the National Football League. When the league was debating the use of instant replay, his words sealed the deal for many. If people sitting in their living rooms can see a play is called incorrectly, then we should be able to see it too, he said. The last time I spoke to him was several years ago. I interviewed him for a column I was writing, and then we talked about the old days in Miami. Anytime we spoke, I always made sure to thank him as I did that day. For what? He said. For not going easy on me, I replied. For toughening me up when I was just starting. He laughed heartily. I wasn't tough that day, was I? No, coach, not at all. Don Shula was the winningest coach in National Football League history with 347 wins. And some news from around the nation. In Phoenix, Arizona, two sheriffs are refusing to enforce Governor Doug Ducey's stay-at-home order. Mojave County Sheriff Doug Schuster and Pino County Sheriff Mark Lamb both said they are not going to hand out fines or citations or arrest people who disobey the governor's mandate that has been extended through May 15. And from Little Rock, Arkansas, the Arkansas Department of Corrections said Sunday that two more state prison inmates who were being treated for the coronavirus have died. Department spokesman Solomon, Solomon Graves said medical officials would determine the cause of the deaths at the Cummins unit. From Yuba City, California, two more counties in Northern California allowed many businesses to reopen Monday in defiance of Governor Gavin Newsom's orders intended to slow the spread of coronavirus and prevent the healthcare system from being overwhelmed. Yuba County and adjacent Sutter County followed the lead of Modoc County on Friday. In Denver, Colorado, a retired paramedic who died from coronavirus after volunteering to help combat the pandemic in New York City was honored Sunday as his body was returned to Denver. Paul Carey, age 66, who worked 32 years as a firefighter paramedic in the Denver suburb, 
died April 30, a month after he began working in New York. And from Hartford, Connecticut, workers at the state's only nuclear power plant worry managers are not taking enough precautions against coronavirus after 750 temporary employees were brought in to help refuel one of two active reactors. Ten employees at the Millstone Power Station in Waterford have tested positive for the coronavirus, and the arrival of the temporary workers alarms some of the permanent employees, the day newspaper reports. From Wilmington, Delaware, police are arresting and ticketing far fewer people during the coronavirus. Some police chiefs say the sharp drop is due to fewer people being out and about. Others acknowledge that the times require a change in strategy, with orders to their officers to use more discretion in deciding whether to make traffic stops. From the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., a high school senior in D.C. has spearheaded an effort to get thousands of critical face shields into local hospitals using an online community of 3D printer enthusiasts. Georgetown Day High School senior Joanna Docter Loeb, a self-professed news junkie, says he was transfixed by television footage of the suffering on such a large scale caused by the coronavirus pandemic. From Daytona Beach, Florida, seniors at two high schools won't be taking the traditional walk across the stage to receive their diplomas. Instead, they will be driving across the finish line at the Daytona International Speedway on May 31st. And from Atlanta, Georgia, the region's largest malls have begun reopening, though not all the stores inside are restarting business, as restrictions enacted in the state because of the coronavirus have been eased. From Hilo, Hawaii, tenants and landlords have been offered free mediation services by a Hawaii County program aimed at preventing a flood of evictions following the expiration of an eviction ban during the health crisis. From Boise, Idaho, a plan to reopen Idaho during the coronavirus pandemic hinges on understanding what the state and individuals have to do to defeat the illness. The co-chair of Governor Brad Little's COVID-19 testing task force said, the Republican governor's four-stage plan to reopen the state by incrementally lifting restrictions spaced by roughly two-week intervals started on Friday. In Lena, Illinois, a small church defied crowd restrictions in the state's latest stay-at-home order, holding a Sunday service with dozens of people. Roughly 100 people attended the beloved church in Lena, according to WREX television. And in Woodward, Iowa, six residents at a facility for people with intellectual disabilities have tested positive for the new coronavirus, although none have shown symptoms of COVID-19, according to officials. From Topeka, Kansas, shuttered retailers, dine-in restaurants, and offices in some parts of the state reopened on Monday as Governor Laura Kelly gradually begins lifting stay-at-home order instituted because of the coronavirus. In Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, a history museum is asking for submissions to document how the coronavirus has affected lives. The Lexington History Museum told WKYT Television that the Lexington Pandemic History Project seeks to build a historical record of the crisis. In Baton Rouge, Louisiana, with some in masks and others uncovered, state lawmakers on Monday resumed the final four weeks of a legislative session stalled by the coronavirus, 
trying to get their arms around the scale of the budget problems caused by the outbreak. In Portland, Maine, the governor's phased reopen plan that includes an extended stay-at-home order through the month's end will cost thousands of jobs and spur economic turmoil, Republican members of the state Senate said on Monday. In Hagerstown, Maryland, Maryland is opening the first state-run drive-through testing site for the coronavirus in western Maryland, Governor Larry Hogan announced on Monday. And in Boston, Massachusetts, Governor Charles Baker said Monday that the state is seeing hopeful data about its effort to limit the spread of coronavirus with fewer hospitalizations and more processed tests, along with a lower proportion of positive results. In Flint, Michigan, state police are investigating whether a security guard at a family dollar store was fatally shot because he refused to allow a customer to enter without wearing a mask. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, the number of people in the state hospitalized in intensive care with COVID-19 has jumped for three straight days to the highest levels yet, according to health officials on Monday. In Jackson, Mississippi, commencement ceremonies are looking a bit different from usual as graduates begin to receive degrees via virtual celebrations. Alcorn State University awarded degrees on Saturday. Mississippi State held its live stream ceremony on Friday. In St. Louis, Missouri, businesses began reopening in the state on Monday, although some major cities hit hard by the coronavirus are keeping restrictions in place a little longer. Among the businesses that can resume operations are restaurants, manufacturing plants, gyms, hair salons, along with churches and sporting events. In Billings, Montana, restaurants, bars, brew pubs, and casinos began reopening Monday with limits on crowds and servers donning masks and gloves. In Lincoln, Nebraska, state officials are struggling to keep up with the flood of unemployment claims that have been filed since the coronavirus pandemic began. Nebraska Labor Commissioner John Albin said the state has been adding workers and streamlining its processes, but there have still been unacceptable delays in getting checks out. In Eunice, New Mexico, Officials say the city will open its library, youth center, and activity center two weeks ahead of a plan outlined by Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, the Hobbs News Sun reports. And in New York City, New York, the mayor rejected calls Monday to stop having police officers enforce social distancing during the coronavirus crisis after one officer was caught on video pulling a stun gun on a man and violently taking him to the ground. From Charlotte, North Carolina, a judge has ordered public officials to turn over detailed information and identify what steps they are taking to prevent coronavirus outbreaks in state prisons. From Grand Forks, North Dakota, a widespread outbreak of the coronavirus that has shuttered a wind turbine plant in the city and initiated a massive contract tracing effort has led many of the state's largest manufacturers to review and relieve or relay their safety measures. Officials with two of the state's largest plants, a window and door maker, Marvin, and agriculture and construction components producer, John Deere Electronic Solutions, say there are new rules of the road. In Columbus, Ohio, Governor Mike DeWine lit into protesters Monday, saying some had crossed the line when it came to how they were treating the media and state health care director, Dr. Amy Acton. Come after me. I'm fair game. They are not, DeWine said. In Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 
The Capitol reopened to the public on a limited basis this week as the legislature prepares to return and residents are starting to return to businesses amid the coronavirus pandemic. In Portland, Oregon, state officials reported the number of Oregonians sick enough to be hospitalized with coronavirus hit a new low on Sunday. In Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the state has passed 50,000 confirmed coronavirus infections, health officials reported on Monday. The numbers of new infections and deaths have been trending down, prompting Governor Tom Wolf to allow construction work to resume, golf courses, marinas, and guided fishing trips, and privately owned campgrounds to reopen. In Providence, Rhode Island, lawmakers face some tough decisions as the state emerges from the coronavirus crisis and tries to plug a budget gap of at least $400 million. But higher taxes appear to be off the table, several legislators told the Providence Journal. And in South Carolina, Columbia, the state has officially begun loosening restrictions on travel, commerce, and recreation implemented during the initial spread of the coronavirus as the Palmetto State tries to regain its economic footing ahead of the summertime tourist season. Monday marked the end of Governor Henry McAllister's stay-at-home order. In St. George, Utah, government officials from southwestern Utah are asking the state if the region could skip ahead to a yellow designation and loosen some of the restrictions put in place to fight the coronavirus pandemic. After the state moved from a high-risk red level to a moderate-risk orange level. In Montpelier, Vermont, the state is allowing some elective health care procedures to resume as it emerges from COVID-19 shutdown. Governor Phil Scott announced Monday. Separately, Monday, more construction and manufacturing workers returned to their jobs after Scott loosened some restrictions. In Richmond, Virginia, Governor Ralph Northam said he anticipates non-essential businesses in the state reopening May 15, saying more time is still needed to help contain the coronavirus pandemic. Northam announced Monday that he is extending by another week an executive order mandating that some non-essential businesses close and banning large gatherings. In Seattle, Washington, hundreds of healthcare workers and doctors and dozens of first responders in the state have become sick with the coronavirus while on the job, according to workers' compensation claims. The new data provides some insight into how the coronavirus has affected the healthcare community, but it underestimates how many doctors and nurses have tested positive for the disease. In Charleston, West Virginia, some restaurants are balking at the chance to reopen as Governor Jim Justice's plan to get the state's economy moving again in response to the coronavirus enters its second week. Starting on Monday, Justice's reopening plan induces small businesses with fewer than 10 employees, restaurants with outdoor seating, barbershops, and dog groomers. In Madison, Wisconsin, Governor Tony Evers on Monday announced that every nursing home resident and worker in the state will be tested for free for the coronavirus. And in Cheyenne, Wyoming, A round of intensive testing for the coronavirus among patients and staff at the state's primary psychiatric hospital turned up no new cases. Our next story, it's only May, but Christmas is already in doubt. The story is written by Matthew Townsend. He writes for Bloomberg News. 
Even with the U.S. economy expected to reopen in the coming months, investors should be prepared for this holiday shopping season to be filled with lumps of coal. In a best-case scenario, retailers who shuttered their locations to slow the spread of the coronavirus would start operating them again in May and June, but many chains in hard-hit discretionary categories like apparel would see sales fall 5-10% to 10% during the holiday shopping season from a year ago, according to Fitch, the ratings company. The reasons are many. Unemployment will remain high because lots of furloughed workers won't be brought back as companies cut costs or don't reopen. A downturn in consumer psychology will boost an already high savings rate. And the risk of a second outbreak of the virus in the fall will hang over everything. We're assuming the customer is pretty slow to come back to all these stores, said David Silverman, an analyst for Fitch, which recently downgraded chains such as Victoria's Secret, owner L Brands Incorporated. Things might not be completely fine until there is a vaccine, and that could take a year or more. There's also a big question over whether chains will have enough goods in stock for Christmas. Virus-triggered shutdowns upended supply chains and weakened the industry's finances. Retailers also upset vendors after canceling orders and will now need them to ship again. This doesn't bode well for an industry that has long been troubled. When state governments ordered the temporary closing of stores not deemed essential, it served as a blow to some of the weakest parts of the discretionary retail such as department stores and clothing chains. Even with essential retailers like Walmart and Home Depot remaining open, U.S. store visits fell 98% in April, according to Protico. Despite the boom in e-commerce, U.S. brick-and-mortar locations will generate about 80% of the retail industry sales during Christmas shopping, according to Research Consumer Growth Partners. That raises questions about what happens to an event like Black Friday, the season's unofficial kickoff in late November, when chains draw crowds with deals on televisions, kitchen knives, and all that foot traffic drives lots of lucrative spur-of-the-moment purchases that e-commerce has not replicated nearly as well. For many chains, those in-person impulse buys or what makes their business models work. Given the concerns about the virus and the added hassle of shopping with social distancing measures like capacity limits, retail, retailers will also have to work extra hard to entice customers to stores, according to Rice Hornball, a former JCPenney company executive who now is the global chief merchandising and marketing officer for Navy Exchange Service Command a chain of stores for service members with $2 billion in sales that's remained open during the pandemic. And that brings us to the end of reading the Ames Tribune for this Tuesday, May 5, 2020. Your reader today has been Dave Sauerman. Thank you for listening to IRIS, your Iowa radio reading and information service for the blind and print handicapped.